Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. So if you're listening to the Solo Collective episodes in order, you will already have heard Emma Gannon talking about self-sabotage and Laurie Santos talking about happiness. And now we move on to the big topic, burnout. I'm so interested to talk to Anne Helen Peterson because a few years back she wrote a BuzzFeed article which went viral about millennials and burnout. Although, of course, burnout is a problem which is more than just a millennial issue. And then it was turned into a book called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And she really is a global expert in burnout. She suffered it herself and she is extremely vocal in conversations about how to not create a working world which actually exacerbates the risk of burnout. And I'm sure as solo workers listening to this, you're already aware that burnout is a massive, massive problem for people who work for themselves. And it's a huge risk. And obviously the consequences of it can be major in terms of our ability to work and to earn and to have happy lives, which frankly, for me, is the most important aspect of all of this. So I think you're going to find this conversation really interesting and useful. Could you give us an overview of what kind of prompted you to write the article about burnout in the first place, kind of how you got there? Yeah, you know, I was burning out and I couldn't (laughs) recognize it as burnout. I think that a lot of high achieving professional type people, like they just think of themselves as like, I'm just doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing. And if I'm tired, if my body feels bad, if Uh, I feel like dull to the world (laughs) if it feels like I'm doing everything all the time or that my life has kind of flattened into a long, never-ending to-do list, that that's just what life is. I think there's this real normalization of burnout culture that has happened, particularly for millennials, but obviously burnout uh, is something that is experienced by people of all generations. So... I had found myself, like the thing that I talk about in the article is like, I couldn't get my errands done. Like I had these things on my list and none of them were like super essential. They were all things that would benefit me in some small way or that like I meant to do for someone else. So like sending a small care package to a friend, right? That I had put together years ago, not years, months, or uh, I had to get my shoes, like I have these boots that I love and I wear every day and the sole was going thin and I needed to get them recobbled. But like, I was like, okay, I have to figure out where the cobbler is. I have to figure out how to park when I go there. Then I don't have my boots for several months. Like, (laughs) like it was just this whole to do. And it just kept recycling every week, all of these things on my to-do list. And it was out of character for me. Like I'm very much a person generally, who's like, okay, here's what we need to do. And here's how we get it done. And so I wanted to kind of investigate 
what was going on with what I called Aaron paralysis. And as I read more and more about it, it just became very clear to me <laughs> that it was burnout. <laughs> and I think that I had really resisted that that word because it was something that I thought like happened to medical professionals, to war correspondents, to people who were dealing with much higher levels of explicit stress than what I was dealing with on a daily basis. And so I tried to, for my article and, and for my book, expand that understanding of what burnout looks like. You know, the the World Health Organization now lists burnout like as an official diagnosis or affliction. And the way they think of it is, is really solely related to work. Uh, and, and so I think that the way that I'm trying to think about burnout is it's not just about what you feel when you are at work and the stress that you feel at work. It's the way that our ideas about work and about labor have really bled into our entire understanding of what our lives should look like, devoured our lives in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I, you're so right. And I, I so identify with those things that you're talking about. They pile up on you, these tasks and responsibilities and expectations until they become really heavy, even though individually they're very small. It's almost like work or the kind of expectations around work and to a certain extent around parenting and some other aspects of life, they kind of expand until they kind of crush out your ability to do all those extra things. And I think it's particularly true for solo workers who place so many expectations on themselves. I mean, it's true for office workers too. I'm not saying it's just a solo worker problem. Do you yeah. think there's a kind of distinct difference between the way that a solo worker might experience burnout in comparison to an office worker? Or is it a broadly similar experience? Yeah. Oh, I think that I think that there are sometimes different mechanisms of burnout that work when you are working within an office, even if you're working remotely, right? Because you're trying to do things like demonstrate that you're working to your coworkers. I call this LARPing your job, live action role-playing your job. And that <laughs> takes that takes a lot of energy to like try to, uh, you know, be on Slack and be like, I'm engaged, I'm engaged over and over again, which actually takes you away from your actual work. Uh, but I think the thing that happens with people who are freelance or solo workers is that you, your potential, you're in total control of your potential, right? There is always more time that can be colonized by working. You can expand that idea of like, okay, this is a an hour that could be taken over by work, at, you know, to infinity or as you know as many hours and uh, days that we have in the week. And so you get this real idea in your head of like, if I'm not working in a moment, it's somehow like whatever I'm doing is bad, right? Because it's not work. You are neglecting work. Even if you consciously were like, I, I don't want to work during this time. I can't work it during this time. I'm, I'm exhausted. It still feels like you are giving up time that could be devoted to work in some capacity. And I think that that creates like a really psychologically difficult place. Right? I, I sometimes call this like everything bad is good. Everything good is bad. So things that make you feel bad, like working past the point of exhaustion. You're like, this is good. I'm working. And things that would otherwise make you feel good, like leisure, spending time with others, relaxing. You, It still has this balance or like this film of badness on it because it's time that could be working. 
Yeah, that was another thing that really spoke to me about the book was talking about how you were engaging in kind of leisure activities or vacations or kind of things that would be assumed to be relaxing and you weren't really feeling them. You weren't really feeling the mm -hmm. the the benefit. And I have had the same experience and it was so good to have that put into words, which I think this, that one really spoke to me because I, I've so many times I've, you know, gone, I mean... I don't get massages very often, but, you know, the, the, the few times that I've done it, I've gone and I've come out and thought I should be feeling transformed. Like there should be, <laughs> isn't that the deal? Like you pay the money and you come out and you're like super relaxed and everything's really, you know, really good. Um, and that hasn't happened. And I've had holidays that have been a similar situation where you've come back from them and thought I should be restored by this experience, but I'm not. And it was so good to know that that's not a failure of me, <laughs> that that is the consequence of, of working too hard, too long over a long period of time. Yeah. If you have the privilege of being able to go on a vacation that's longer than a week, it takes that first week just to let go of some of those compulsions and some of those understandings. Like I, um, after I wrote the article, actually, like the next month after I wrote the article, I went on a three-week trip to Cambodia and Laos. And the first week was really like just my body letting go, right? Like I got sick, not from the food or anything like that, just like, you know, the, the, the stress washing out of you. And then you can kind of reorient yourself around a different rhythm and a different understanding of what you should be doing. But if it takes you a whole week to get rid of that feeling that that's, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and also I think the thing with something like a massage or um, a facial or any other aspects of self-care, right? This commodification of self-care that we're like, okay, if I just buy something, if I just take care of myself for 45 minutes, that somehow it's going to function as an antidote to this whole ideology that is that we have internalized about when when and how we should be working it's just not going to work right it's like it's a band-aid on a gaping wound and it doesn't just commodify the problem it also individualizes it 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 tells you that you're the you're the issue you're a solvable problem and that if you just spend enough or do enough of the right things then it will go away when actually it's much more a structural issue um, a kind of the way in which work has been constructed. And I think, you know, there's a real unfairness about how people talk about millennials, um, about, you know, as like they're weak and, and they're kind of, you know, they don't have any resilience and they're not strong enough to deal with stuff. And I say that as a, as an elder millennial or just a really old one, this isn't necessarily something for which they take the, should take the blame because these issues have kind of built up and, created this context where actually it's it's quite hard to have success or to get, gain a foot on the property ladder or, or any of those things that were set out for us when we were young or growing up or you know just about to leave school as the markers of adulthood and success right it's like you have <laughs> you have like some boomers in a pool who have been given like floaties right and they're like, they're just buoyant. They're just hanging out in the pool, relaxing. And then you have millennials who have weights around their ankles and are trying to keep their head above water. And the boomer's like, why aren't you thriving? Like, why aren't you hanging out here? It's like having a great time with me, you know? <laughs> and I think that that is oftentimes um, 
some of that anger and resentment that millennials feel towards boomers in particular is like, here is my situation. Like I can, I am barely keeping my head above water. And you're like, why do you have student debt? It's particularly in the United States. Or why haven't you amassed these savings? Why haven't you arrived at these milestones of adulthood? Why are you waiting so long to have kids? Why aren't you having kids? It's like, well, I don't have the stability that I think is necessary in order to do that. So what are the kind of consequences of all this stuff? I mean, what what did you discover when you were researching the book and when you were writing that, the article about what this does to us kind of from a health point of view, from a, a mental health point of view? What Why is burnout such an important thing to think about and try and avoid? I mean, at some point the body... And the mind says no, right? Like, I think that there, there are breaking points and sometimes they are dramatic, but most oftentimes they are just pulling away, right? And you can see it in all sorts of different professions where people leave the profession because they just cannot handle it anymore. You see it in academia, you see it in teaching, um, so many di- like nonprofits, arts work, like if there aren't the, the components there, to, to make that life feel stable in some capacity, at some point you, you stop. And so I think a lot of the, the best minds, the most innovative minds, the most diverse minds are basically are just shedding off of these different professions. And it's more difficult for, I think, people of color, especially people who do not have the class stability, the generational class stability of having extended family, like those boomers in your family who can be like, oh, okay, I'll give you the house payment, right? That is something that is uh, like the divisions of of who has that stability, who does not, they cut across racial lines pretty clearly. And it's especially difficult for women. Um, If if you want to be a mom at some point in your life um, and also have a career, how is that possible? Like what, what sort of sacrifices do you have to make in order for that to happen? And I think it's really hard to find legitimate part-time work that feels fulfilling. So what happens is a lot of women drop out of the workforce and have difficulty finding their way back in. And that just it sustains the, the pay gap. It sustains the leadership gap, it, um, according to gender. Like it's just, there's all these different ramifications that uh, come from not dealing with the with burnout, right? Like we are allowing a certain sort of person to become more resilient. Like they have protections that allow them to resist burnout in different ways. And then other people uh, have to figure out a coping mechanism in some way. And a lot of times that's just like giving up on that style of work. That's really interesting. So that perpetuates the kind of I mean, in the UK, it's very class-based, but that perpetuates the class and, to a certain extent, gender-based setups that we already have. I'm really interested in what you've written about the kind of people from already marginalised groups, because I think a lot of the time when people think about solo workers, they might think about, you know, graphic designers or um, writers like me or kind of journalists or artists or whatever. But actually, the solo working environment is incredibly diverse, obviously, and can include people in the gig economy, the the worst bits of the gig economy, that is people in the UK on zero hours contracts. I mean, that is a recipe for burnout, probably far quicker and far deeper than the kind of burnout someone like me would experience. So to what extent do you think that 
has been kind of noticed you know have we have we are we paying attention to the burnout that isn't just as you say people in high octane jobs um at the high ends of of high up professions i think we haven't paid enough attention right because a lot of that sort of gig work especially anything that demands physical labor or um repetitive labor so something like the person who goes to the grocery store and and does your shopping for you during the pandemic like the amount of like picks that they have to make or in the Amazon warehouse, that sort of thing. Like they are doing these repetitive stress movements and they're doing it for pay that, you know, at least in the United States, minimum wage is not a a living wage. It is not a livable wage in most States. So they are not making enough to survive on. And that means that they also have to take on additional work in order to make ends meet for their family. So their bodies actually break down. And then oftentimes these are the people who have no insurance or very bad insurance or don't have the, the means to seek medical care. And so the, you know, it's breaking down, <laughs> it's breaking down our actual bodies. So who is like, who actually has these workers back? Who is saying like, you cannot do this to your body at this wage, like we cannot survive. And that, I think, is something that we just don't think about enough. But we need to just think about like, oh, are we creating this this very distinctive delineation that's only getting wider, right, with time between people who destroy their bodies in service of like same-day delivery and people who (laughs) cannot conceive of leisure and are constantly glued to their laptops and are destroying their bodies in other ways because of their dedication to knowledge work. Yeah, it's a mess, actually. <laughs> it's a total mess. <laughs> when you lay it out like that, it is, it's a real mess. I mean, it's capitalism, right? Like, it's capitalism. And that's the thing that I think is increasingly easy to, to put a finger on. Like, you know, like, I think that we have reached the point where everyone can identify the problem. If we're not going to reject capitalism altogether, how do we re-regulate it in a way that, ceases to destroy yeah because I guess my concern is that all that happens is capitalism becomes a kind of hashtag and or you know screw capitalism or end capitalism and we all go and buy a t-shirt from Amazon um that says it (laughs) and you know like it has to be it has to be a bit bigger than that doesn't it so introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. So... Let, one of my things is like, how do we stop fetishizing over work? It's a really tricky situation because often in a in an office environment, 
that overwork is rewarded, right? You're often the person who's promoted if you're the person who's kind of visibly present. And I think that as digital presenteeism has become a problem, that's only kind of been exacerbated. So, and then solo workers have a tendency, not all of them, but many solo workers have a tendency to kind of um, just adopt the processes and traditions that they would have experienced in an office because that stuff's pervasive, even if you've never worked in an office. So how do we how do we move away from this stuff? So here's what I think. I've thought about this a lot. I think that if you leave it to individuals to come to this revelation, you are just going to have one generation after another say, well, I could work like that, right? Like I, I you know, those millennials are, they're complaining all the time about work, but here we are, Gen Z, we're ready to work. And they will embrace that work ethic until they flame out. And then you'll have another generation. And I think the same thing holds to, like, on the individual level, if one person flames out, there will always be another person who is eager to take that job and to take that opportunity. So this is where I think that it has to be structural in terms of, like, companies and the government has to put in not just boundaries, because I think boundaries are increasingly BS, right? Like we talk about boundaries, they are so (laughs) malleable and flexible and people just like burst through them all the time. Like the word has become so meaningless. So I think it has to be a guardrail because a guardrail is put there to protect you from like the semi-truck of work, right? And of capitalism that is just like coming at you. So a guardrail is there and it's sturdy and it is maintained by people in power to protect you. And so what does that look like in practice? Like that could be things around, like you cannot email after this certain point at night. Like the EU is is currently debating about these like digital freedom to not, to disconnect essentially laws, which have been in place in France and um, kind of spotty, I think, in Italy. The problem is they they made this law and then they were like, feel free to not do this. <laughs> like it was just a, a recommendation with no implementation and no consequences if you broke it. So that's a boundary, right? Like that's just something that people push through. You need to have actual guardrails and they can't just be like, no email after five o'clock at night, because that's not how the world works anymore. I think if you try, if you're trying to somehow recreate this work life balance that is straight out of 1955, like it's just going to fail. The digital reality of the workplace is, it's just different. So we have to think creatively about what these guardrails will actually look like for our contemporary reality and how to make it so that, (laughs) how to normalize not just out of office responders, but like, I don't send an email at 11 PM. If I am for some reason on my computer and I send that email, like someone is going to chide me and be like, this is not how we operate here. Like actually enforcing discipline around that idea. If I may just ask a bit about your solo working life. Yeah. How did it feel to go from Buzzfeed to working by yourself on your brilliant newsletter and um, like, how did that transition work for you? Because obviously you were kind of dealing with stuff around burnout as well as thinking about it kind of intellectually at the time. Did it kind of improve things? Is it harder? How did you find it? 
Well, it didn't feel novel to me at all because I think that even though I was full a full-time employee at BuzzFeed, I have essentially, I think, been freelancing in some capacity for my entire writing right. career. So academia really feels like a freelance job, right? Like it, it, even though you are employed by a university, you have a small section of time when you are supposed to be in a given place in time and the rest of the time is completely yours to figure out what to do with it. And all of the resultant overwork and um, precarity that solo workers feel, like that, that is a, a norm, especially for contingent faculty and, and grad, graduate students. So I had experienced all of that for some time. <laughs> and then when I went to BuzzFeed, I was still writing books, right? So I was still always trying to juggle not just like I have one job and this is my own responsibility. I was also doing these books. I would go and do um, speaking gigs and and have these other parts of my life that were always very much there. I think what happened when I left BuzzFeed was I just decided, okay, what if I take <laughs> this part of the pie that right now is about 60% of my life and I replace that, like I just take care of, get rid of that 60%. And then I can fill that with the newsletter, which already had been about 10% of my life. And then I'm still doing other sorts of freelance work. And I amazingly, as soon as my, the burnout book came out, I sold another book with my partner about working from home and, and what the new flexible work scenario is going to look like. So, and that was kind of, you know, I don't know if you've had one of these experiences, one of those like uh, quarantine highs where you're like, oh yeah, we can do anything, right? Like, why not do this? This sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and we sold it and we're like, this is, this is a fantastic idea. And then we're like, oh yeah, we have to write it. Um, so trying to juggle writing another book, like the draft is due in a couple of weeks with also doing the newsletter. It's a lot and you can't go anywhere. So there's just this real lack of dynamism to the days that I think for a lot of solo workers can, can feel stultifying, but it's almost over. You know, the pandemic's going to end. It will. It will. And the, and this book draft is going to go in. And then I'm looking forward to exploring what like the dynamics of really just having a newsletter that goes out twice a week. Like what does that work life look like? And just having that, that being the thing, is that what you're anticipating? <sighs> Well, it's not. I know. I mean, I can see that. I can see that in you because I recognize it because it's in me too. Like I, I, I call it the wearing of yeah. many hats. I have like seven hats I have to wear a day. Like, and right. yeah, I find I right. find that so challenging. And I wonder if that's a kind of. I mean, that is not unique to solo working, but I do think that a lot of solo workers wear a lot of hats because it's you know portfolio careers are a feature of a lot of solo work. And does that contribute to burnout more, like that sense of constantly shifting between different identities and often competing identities? And often, and I speak for myself here, a sense that you're not actually doing any of them very well. <laughs> um, is that a kind of burnout inducing thing, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. And and I think that oftentimes the the instability that results from having an income that is really piecemeal, right? Like not knowing exactly when checks are going to come in, how much they're going to be, just having that that background worry 
it's a really different experience than knowing, you know, every two weeks, every four weeks, like this is how much is going to come into my bank account. And that financial precarity, I think, leads people to say yes to more things than they should say yes to, right? To say yes to things they don't actually want to do, right? To assignments or projects that they don't actually feel connected to in any capacity. I still, from grad school, like just have this incredible scarcity mindset where if someone wants to pay me money to do something, I'm like, yes, you know? But I, I, <laughs> it is really hard for me to say no to opportunities because that's what I think of it as, is an opportunity instead of an obligation. Um, and so I'm really working on thinking about which things, like if I schedule it, when it comes up on my calendar, am I going to resent it? Am I going to loathe it? Am I going to dread doing that thing? and just have to like talk myself through it. It's for the money. And a great thing that someone told me to do is like for things like that, that you know that you would resent in some capacity, just like put a high price tag <laughs> yeah. on it. And, and if, they, if they pay you that high price tag, then great, do it. <laughs> but otherwise that is a really great way to, to put a boundary, <laughs> a guardrail <laughs> around yourself to protect from doing that work that makes you miserable is saying, I will do this work, but only at this certain price point. Um, and that then most of the time, the person will not give you that money. <laughs> so you don't have to do it. Uh, and so I think that like, that is sometimes the hard thing is arriving at a place of stability where you can say no to things. We're saying no becomes an option. Self-preservation becomes something that is just even a, a possible i think that's really interesting but i also think there's something about what we the options we present to ourselves because i have exactly the same problem in terms of saying yes to everything but i also and i suspect you might be similar given what you just said about selling another book directly after you've just written a book um and with your partner <laughs> at that which and i work with my partner so i know what that <laughs> i know what the price of that is too um yeah. is is sort of do we um do we do that to ourselves often solo workers like do we create yeah. sort of so-called opportunities like I'm always trying to have new ideas and thinking of new stuff but I have literally no more time there is no more time in my schedule beyond the exact things that I'm doing right now no given all of that mm -hmm. I'm very clear that I shouldn't take on anymore I shouldn't try and find something new to do and yet I am already trying to think of another book to write um even though I can't write another book in the current situation like I cannot do that um and I just is that do you think maybe it's just literally just you and me but do you think that's a sort of solo working trope is that something that we kind of put on ourselves and need to kind of guardrail against a bit do you think yeah well I mean some of it's personality right like I know solo workers I was having a great email conversation the other day with someone who was like just can't get myself motivated. Like I get really interested in reading about something and then I want to read about it for a month and I don't want to pitch anyone. Oh, that sounds nice. And it, <laughs> <laughs> right. And she was like, I feel like I should be more ambitious and building my brand more, but I'm pretty happy with things the way that they are. And I, it just reminds me that like everyone just feels bad about whatever they're doing. Like, it's really hard to find some sort of equilibrium yeah. and satisfaction. But I do think that people like you and I, like, I, I wonder what it is that motivates us in terms of like, why do we feel like we always want to get 
mm-hmm. another book contract. For me, it's that I always feel like the yeah. other shoe's about to drop. Like I always feel like everything could come crumbling down if I stop swimming for one second. And I it, every every day it feels a little bit less like that, right? Um, but it's really, really difficult to let go of those habits and that mindset that got us to the place yeah. that we are. Yeah, that's the difficult thing, isn't it? It's a it's very hard once you're sort of somewhere because I don't believe in end points, but once you're sort of somewhere, you right. it's very hard to let go of those um, bits of behaviours that, that, yeah, like you say, that got you there because you think you're dependent on them. And, may, and maybe maybe you are a bit, you know, it's really hard to unpick. Um, I think it's such an interesting question. And I guess that's one of the things that I want these conversations to do for solo workers is just encourage people to ask questions of themselves and how they got to where they are and whether where they are is okay and how they could maybe kind of tweak bits of where they are to make the setup work better for them. Because, I mean, as you say at the end of your book, um, you're not you're not going to write a list of kind of actionable things that we can do to avoid burnout, um, which I I really loved that, that that was what you said because I think that's really important. But at the same time, I feel as though we do have to, as you put it in the book, view things through a lens and think quite carefully about what we're doing to ourselves and the choices that we are making when we do have choices, like <laughs> trying to come up with another book idea. <laughs> well yeah and I think that I think that what is helpful to me like the lens that I look at myself through is like that's a burnout behavior like you are doing a burnout behavior right now you know and sometimes it's easy to set it down and back away from it and sometimes I don't have any control over it right like sometimes I'm like I can't deal with this right now I'm too burnt out to like to grapple with this but I think that that is is useful. Yeah. And I loved your thing about, um, I don't think it was in the book, I think it was in an interview that I read with you about um, your measure of burnout levels being about whether you can read fiction or not. You know, because I feel like that yeah. was such a common experience in the pan- in the beginning of the pandemic where people would say, I haven't been able to read a book for six mm-hmm. months. And I wonder if we need to kind of adopt a few of those little um, behaviours where we analyse where we're at a bit better because that's so useful. Otherwise, you just kind of like cruise along and then have a massive crash without realising. So anything we can do to kind of analyse our own state is probably just so valuable. If you just look at your life a little bit, you'll see it right? Whether it's being able to read fiction, whether it's habits with your phone, um, your relationship with your inbox, like you will see these markers of, of exhaustion and burnout. And the, the real struggle then is once you see it, what now, right? And how did you get there? And how can you try to set yourself up to avoid that in the future? But it's a struggle worth having. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours. This was great. (laughs) This was so, so great. This is a really great conversation. One of the most problematic things, I think, about this moment that we're in with regard to work is that work has been allowed to, indeed expected to, expand to fill our whole lives up. It has got the right somehow to access 
bits of our personality, bits of our day, bits of our lives that it never, ever had the right to be in before. It comes with us to the gym. It comes with us on walks. It's with us at mealtimes. It's with us in the evening. It's with us in bed, partly because of our smartphones and partly because of the, the super high expectations that we and the people who we work with have of us and how we work. And that is not what life should be like. Nobody ever sat down and wrote a life plan that said, I want to work all the hours there are and have no life. That isn't what we're built for. That's not what success looks like. That's not what we should be aiming for. So what Anne Helen is doing in bringing this stuff to the fore is so vital. And I kind of want everyone to listen, like everybody in the world, to listen to this episode so that her message can get out there because I don't think it's something that we've got to grips with yet societally, culturally, globally and I want as many people as possible to hear what she's got to say You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original The Solo Collective with me, Rebecca Seal produced by Laura Hyde with support from Fatuma Keira original music by Dee Plume and mixed by Alex Portfelix Chalk and Blade. Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small. You've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait. There's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started.